Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Elizabeth McClendon, a lonely lady looking for love who had finally found her future husband in a man named Arthur Boyce. And although this sweet-natured and attentive man seemed like Mr. Wright, he was actually a liar, a thief, a bigamist, and just months later, a murderer. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 92, Elizabeth McClendon and the Wrong Mr. Wright. Today, I'm standing on Chester Square in Belgravia, SW1. Four roads west of the McSwan family, whose bodies were dissolved by the acid bath murderer. Three streets north of Victoria Station, where Patrick Mann dumped the hacked-up bits of Emily Bell Bicay. A few doors down from the murder house of Lord Lucan, and four streets southeast of the infamous Spaghetti House siege, coming soon to Murder Mile. Being tucked behind Buckingham Palace, Belgravia is so posh it makes Mayfair look like a disco bin at Poundland. Everything here is super expensive to keep the riffraff out. Nothing is signposted so the tourists stay away. There's enough back streets so the nannies need never be seen. And just like its residents, Belgravia is extremely wealthy, but it has no style, soul or personality. It's ugly, old and has had so many lifts you can't see its wrinkles. And yet it's so sour-faced it never smiles anyway. So if you're a pointless posh thing with a huge inheritance and no real purpose, here you can buy all manner of useless crap to fill that empty void in your life. 
like doggy tiaras, toddler Lamborghinis, mink tampons, caviar Mars bars, smoothies made from snow leopards, a bum servant for when you're too posh to wipe your own ass, and a wet nurse whose boobs dispense almond milk and chilled champagne. In the centre of Belgravia, on an S-shaped street, is 45 Chester Square, a five-storey, grey-two-listed cream-coloured townhouse with nine bedrooms, six bathrooms, five reception rooms and a sale price of £6.5 million. And even though its most famous resident was once King George II of Greece, its most infamous resident wasn't those who lived there, but those who died. As it was here, on Saturday the 8th of June 1946, that Elizabeth McClendon, housekeeper to the King of Greece, was murdered, having met the wrong man, who she believed was Mr. Wright. Given her upbringing, it's no surprise that Elizabeth was a dreamer. Born in 1905, Eliza was one of six children raised in a large Irish family who had emigrated from the rain-soaked poverty of County Derry to the choked acrid stench of Bathgate, an industrial town in the mid-lowlands of Scotland. Like a deep black stain on its lush green heart, Bathgate was a putrid mess of coal mines, slag heaps, shale pits, brickworks and steelyards which loomed over the shabby terraces its workers called home. As day after day, their air became dirtier, their food grittier, the sunlight was eclipsed by thick dark clouds, and their words were drowned out by the thunder of machines. As when it rained, the crystal clear water from the hills oozed down the sooty streets like black soupy rivers. Times were hard, life was difficult, and living a hand-to-mouth existence. When the work dried up, the family were forced to move on to the next squalid hellhole, from Bathgate to Newcastle to Liverpool. And although she was unskilled, untrained and poorly educated, Eliza dreamed of so much more than just warmer clothes, fuller bellies, and all of the basics, only better. For her future, she dreamed big. Unlike her sisters, who had married into only marginally better lives, Eliza planned to marry a millionaire, a titled gent with lands, estates and servants, who would shower this hopeless romantic with fine foods, ming shawls and sparkling jewels in a life of indescribable luxury and opulence. But fulfilling her dream was always going to be difficult. And in her case, it would remain just a dream. Firstly, she was a working-class nobody from nowhere up north with no connections to high society. Secondly, as unfair as it was, being a short, stout girl who was never the prettiest, the smartest or the wittiest, 
she was hardly the type to catch a gentleman's eye. And thirdly, although ambitious, being a flaky lady who hated hard work, she was too eager to live the easy life and too lazy to put in the effort. And yet, fueled by dreams of falling in love, she never gave up hope. In 1925, Eliza moved to London and enrolled as a trainee nurse at the Metropolitan Hospital in Dalston, where she hoped she'd meet a dishy doctor or wealthy widow. But with her attendance poor, being slow to learn, and unable to stand the sight of blood, after less than a year, she quit. In 1926, she took a short course in domestic service at the Regent Street Polytechnic, hoping to go from live-in housekeeper to lady of the house in one fell swoop. But with the hours long, the pay poor, and her work record a little sketchy, she drifted from job to job, unloved and unmarried. In 1930, with her standards set a lot lower, 25-year-old Eliza moved into a tiny flat in Tottenham with William Mutlow, a 56-year-old labourer and petty thief. And even though he was a bad man with a big heart who would do anything for her, she liked his attention, but she felt she deserved better. In May 1945, Eliza struck gold, having been hired as the housekeeper to Lord Angus Holden in his palatial Knightsbridge townhouse. Being giddy with glee, Eliza fell for this young handsome bachelor, and as she did with every man that she had ever met, she dreamed that one day this wealthy baron would become her husband. But Lord Holden wasn't the one. In fact, he wasn't her lover. He was just her employer. After nine months of service, fearing that this scandalously pregnant single woman would bring shame on the baron, Eliza was forced to quit her job. Having spent 10 days in St. George's Hospital, crippled by infection, owing to the complications of an illegal abortion, being both broke and homeless, her forever lover, William Mutlow, paid for Eliza to rest and recuperate by the fresh seaside air of Brighton. And here, feeling physically weak and mentally drained, Eliza lost all hope of ever achieving her dream. But it was when she least expected it that her dream came true. On the 3rd of April 1946, Eliza met a wealthy businessman called Arthur Boyce. He was a well-spoken, sharply dressed bachelor and a decorated war hero who had proudly served his country as a sergeant in the Queen's Regimental Guards. He was loving, charming, passionate. And being so besotted by Eliza, he was desperate to marry her and to make her happy forever. Finally, Eliza had met her Mr. Wright. But three months later, Mr. Wright became Mr. Wrong.
Arthur was a liar. Every word he uttered was a twisted fact or distorted tale, deliberately concocted to wheedle his evil little way into the broken heart of this giddy lovesick lady. But his life was a sham. There was nothing distinguished about his upbringing. In fact, he was as dirt poor as Eliza. But whereas she dreamed of marrying into money, he dreamed of ripping them off. Arthur Robert Boyce was born on the 12th of January 1921 in Poplar, East London. An industrial dock thick with the chaotic thud and chug of ships, trains and cranes. As day and night, wagons full of fresh fruit, exotic fish and fine wines thundered by tantalizingly close to the slum house of the Boyce family. With no electricity, no gas, no water and no sewage, they were only warm when their father could earn. In the spring of 1911, Arthur's father died, leaving his mother a widow with five children to feed. Arthur didn't want to be poor anymore, but without the skills or the discipline to earn it. Instead, he would steal it. In 1917, Arthur was old enough to fight for his country, to earn an honest crust, and as his brothers did, to support his ailing mother. But he didn't. Seeing anything which wasn't nailed down as his for the taking, Arthur descended into a life of petty crime. Age 16, he was bound over for pinching a watch. Age 17, he served three months hard labour for nicking a gold ring. And his theft and deceit continued right up to the moment that he stole Eliza's heart, with one eye on her employer's wealth. As a boyfriend, he was no more a loving or loyal man than he was an actual bachelor. Age 19, Arthur married his pregnant girlfriend, Emily Twinley, and in 1923, their daughter Eileen was born. Being a dad, he could have become a good provider by going straight. But he didn't. And he celebrated her birth by serving six weeks hard labour for stealing a bike. Again, in 1925, their son Robert was born, whilst Arthur did a month inside for abandoning his wife. In 1927, he missed Leonard's birth by doing three months for stealing lead, and he missed a whole year of their childhoods, having nicked fags, booze and cash. In 1939, he said he joined the army, but he didn't. In 1940, that he had escaped Dunkirk, but he hadn't. In 1943, he said that he had been blown up by a mine causing a limp and a perpetual tremor to his right hand. And although his injuries were real, the story was not. And in 1944, as a decorated sergeant in the Queen's Regimental Guards, that he was discharged on a good pension and would forever regale his pals with tales of his bravery. At least, that's what he said. But it was all a lie. In truth, having been whacked on the head with a bit of timber, he was in a coma for a day, in hospital for a year, 
and confined to a spinal jacket for three years. In 1940, his fourth child was born, but by then, he had abandoned Emily. In 1942, he served another year for forgery. In 1943, he met Kathleen Whittle, and having falsely claimed to be a grieving widower whose wife and kids had died in the Blitz, just one year later, she became his second wife, and Arthur served 18 months for bigamy. In 1945, he swindled 1,500 pounds using forged checks. But by April 1946, having squandered the lot, he was broke and earning a pittance as a carpenter at the House of Fun on Brighton's Palace Pier. And yet, it was there that he met his next target. On the 26th of April 1946, after a decade of domestic service, with her references poor, but an impressive list of past employers, Eliza acquired the prestigious position as housekeeper to King George II of Greece in his Belgravia residence at 45 Chester Square. Her job was high profile, her wage was decent, and living there rent-free in this unoccupied five-storey townhouse while it was decorated. All she had to do was keep it clean, should His Majesty arrive unannounced. But better still, her love life was blooming. Eliza had found herself the perfect man, who was attentive, generous and kind. When they were apart, their phone calls were loving and heartfelt. When they were together, their sex was hot and steamy. And in their letters, they talked of nothing but bright futures. And with her wealthy war veteran, having promised to cash in £350 from his military pension, to set them up in their first home, and to start his own business as a builder, having got engaged and set a wedding date for the 16th of June, Eliza set about preparing for her big day. For his blushing bride-to-be, Arthur's generosity knew no bounds. On Monday the 3rd of June, he spoiled Eliza with a meal of champagne and caviar at the exclusive Scots of Mayfair restaurant. Being a few quid short, Arthur paid by cheque. And even though the head waiter's suspicions were aroused by the misspelling of simple words like two and four, taking five days for the money to clear, Arthur would bounce cheques all over town and no one would notice for almost a week. That day, Arthur called T.M. Sutton the jewellers and ordered that a diamond ring be bought to the King of Greece's home. With Eliza dazzled by the sparkling gems, as Arthur made out a cheque for £174, almost £16,000 today, she didn't spot that he had misspelt the word 100 but the salesman did, and arranged for them to collect it only once the cheque had cleared. But some shops weren't so cautious. Tuesday the 4th of June, from Joseph Skinner & Co, Arthur ordered a basket of wild mushrooms and exotic fruits, worth £500 today. On Wednesday the 5th, from the White Company on New Bond Street, 
He treated Eliza to a pigskin handbag, a red lizard purse, and a lace wedding veil, amounting to £9,000. On Thursday the 6th, Arthur hired a chauffeur-driven limo from Moon Motors Limited to escort himself and his lover around the West End for a day of shopping, theatre and cocktails. And on Friday the 7th, he purchased her so many bouquets of flowers it was impossible to enter her bedroom, as well as a fur coat which cost more than a house. Eliza was so blinded by love that she fell under his spell. But she wasn't so dense that she didn't see the warning signs. Not once in the three months they were together did Arthur's military pension ever seem to pay out. By the end of their week's extravagant spending spree, being unable to track down Arthur, every store they had visited called Eliza to complain that each check had bounced. And having name-dropped King George II of Greece and had a wealth of lavish goods hand-delivered to 45 Chester Square, including several tailored suits, smart shoes and gold watches for himself, the King's private secretary, Sophocles Papanikolaou, was now being chased for payment. Eliza wasn't a great housekeeper, and now, being suspected as a thief, her job was on the line. Very quickly, their love had grown stale. Every kiss was followed by an apology, every love letter was preceded by a fight, and with Arthur proving to be far from perfect, and even though he claimed to be a bachelor, Eliza was already suspicious that this was not the truth. On the 29th of May 1946, Eliza sent a letter to Kathleen Whittle of Bournemouth, asking if she had broken off her engagement to Arthur. On Friday the 7th of June, Kathleen replied, and Eliza's dream shattered. Not only did Arthur marry Kathleen, and he was still married to Kathleen, but having uncovered his long criminal history of theft, fraud, abandonment and bigamy, he was still married to his first wife, Emily. Eliza confronted Arthur over this. He denied any wrongdoing. But for Eliza, the romance was over. At 5pm that day, as a nervous wreck who hadn't slept in a week, Eliza went to her local chemist called Jagenko, and having told the pharmacist of her woes, and how she had planned to break off her engagement to her bigamous fiancé that weekend. To settle her nerves, he prescribed a mild sedative. That night, Eliza slept well, but that sleep would be her last. Saturday the 8th of June 1946 was Eliza's last day alive. But for London, it was a moment of great joy, as to commemorate the end of the Second World War, the city would host the Victory Celebrations, a series of military processions by many Allied forces across Regent's Park, the Mall and High Park. Featuring 500 tanks and transports, 100,000 troops, a flyby of 300 aircraft, 
a flotilla of ships sailing down the River Thames, and the night culminating in the skyline being illuminated for the first time in seven years, and a colossal fireworks display. It would be a party like no other, and with the king's decorators and Eliza taking the day off, 45 Chester Square would be empty. At 11.30am, Eliza was witnessed at the Lion's Cornerhouse Tea Room in Piccadilly as she watched the parade march by. Ten minutes later, she was accompanied by Arthur, but their mood seemed strained. At 1pm, the housekeeper next door at 46 Chester Square saw Eliza dash out, slam the front door and run into Elizabeth Street. Moments later, hearing a second slam, Arthur chased after her in a furious rage. That was the last ever sighting of Elizabeth McClendon. The very next day, on Sunday the 9th of June at 3pm, as thousands of slightly sore citizens stumbled home and grumbled about their huge hangovers they'd inherited from the previous night's festivities, with no fanfare, King George II and Princess Christine of Greece arrived unannounced at 45 Chester Square, accompanied by their private secretary, Sophocles. Rightly, the king was displeased. The milk was still on the doorstep, his house was untidy, the housekeeper was absent, and even though her belongings were still in their bedroom, the back room on the ground floor was locked and the key was missing. Dissatisfied with her work, Sophocles had planned to sack Eliza anyway, and having quickly secured a replacement housekeeper who was actually good, he wasn't concerned. He was just unimpressed. But on Friday the 14th of June 1946, at 3.45pm, with Eliza having been missing for six days, the door still locked, and the royal residence perturbed by an ominous smell and the festering buzz of flies, with the king's permission, Detective Inspectors Ball and Hearn broke down the door and found Eliza. The back room was small and dark. It had a door, a desk, a chair, a phone, and nothing more. Seen from behind, Eliza looked alive, or being sat upright, with her head to one side, her arms on the desk, and her legs splayed out below. Perhaps she was asleep. Dressed in a blue skirt, a jumper, and the fur-lined coat she had worn to the parade. It looked as if she had just come in to make a call. With her right hand near the phone, her left hand on an open directory, and her finger poised at a list of local police stations. As the police approached, she was still and silent. But there was no denying that Eliza was dead. At the nap of her neck, Almost obscured by her shoulder-length brown hair was a small hole, easy to confuse with a birthmark or a mole had the flies not been feeding on the dried blood. 
but as the officers came round to the corpse's front, her cause of death was obvious. There were no defensive wounds and no signs of struggle or assault, but owing to her state of decomposition, she had died six days prior. That night, as she had sat to make a call, from the open door just a few feet behind her, Eliza had been shot once by a 32 caliber Browning pistol. Its nickel casing was found on the floor, the crumpled bits of bullet embedded in the far wall, and the wooden desk before her was spattered and soaked in her sticky dark blood. The shot by her angry assailant was clumsy and rushed. As entering her neck and not her head, an inch off she may have survived. But with her head angled forward as she read the phone directory, the bullet shattered her spinal column, smashed her upper jaw, and as the hard bone splintered the bullet into pieces, which ripped through her soft palate, the lethal lead projectiles tore through the right of her nostrils. As slumping to her left, she freely bled from her nose, mouth and face. Missing her brain, her death wasn't instantaneous. But being paralysed, she sat alone and watched her life drain away. Elizabeth McClendon was a giddy lady who dreamed of a marriage to a good man. She thought she had found Mr. Wright, but having murdered her, her body would be discovered just two days before her wedding. The investigation was simple. In the three months they were together, Eliza had introduced her fiancé to many people. In her bedroom, he had left his ID card, ration book and clothes, as well as love letters he had written, whose scruffy handwriting and bad spelling matched those bounced checks. At 11pm that evening, 45-year-old Arthur Robert Boyce was held at Brighton Police Station. And although he had fabricated a series of letters to her friends, her family, and even Eliza herself, expressing his concern for her safety, even without a witness or a motive, police had enough evidence to charge him with murder. The three-day trial was held at the Old Bailey on the 16th of September 1946, and after 70 minutes of deliberation, the jury found him guilty. Asked if he wished to comment before his death sentence was passed, he said, I should like to thank his lordship and the members of the jury. I think I have had a fair trial. And as he gazed about the packed courtroom to soak up his moment of celebrity, he said, Although, I am entirely innocent of this crime. Thank you. On the 1st of November 1946, at 9am, Arthur Robert Boyce was hanged at Pentonville Prison. Being arrogant to the last, and seeing everything as his for the taking, he showed no remorse for his victim, Elizabeth McClendon. A giddy lady, from a poor family, who had dreamed of a better life, 
by marrying Mr. Wright. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Up next is Waffle Time, where nothing much really happens except tea being drank, cake being eaten, and words being expelled from a mouth. So if you're a fan of cakey drinky gobbledygook, stay tuned. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Jenny Moxie Cruz, Anthea Richardson, Hanny Sophie Harginson, and Melissa Burnett. I thank you. With a special thank you to Jartan Germanson, Claire Wilman, and Selena Dean for your very kind donations. I thank you all. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who has left lovely reviews of Murder Mile on your favourite podcast app. I really do read all of them, and they are very much appreciated. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile. slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. that hurt oh and it was a long one as well Boy, hey cheeky hey everyone how's it going oh dear oh that one hurt that hurt oh i don't know why it just hurt my voice that one i don't know why oh, probably because i didn't get any sleep last night couldn't get any sleep couldn't get too sleep couldn't get comfortable nothing seemed to work oh dear anyway anyway extra mile time here we are we're here extra mile time waffle waffle i make some tea i have some cake <coughs> i tell you some extra stuff that wasn't in this episode there is quite a bit that i did remove in the end first i'm going to put on a tea i'm going to move away from the microphone i'm going to put on my tea this is everyone's favorite bit oh exciting he's going to make a cup of tea yay um you can join me if you like go and make a cup of tea as well i'm going to make a cup of tea Oh, moving away from the microphone. This is the bit everyone goes, Ooh, can't hear you. Ooh, can't hear you. You're away from the mic. Yeah, of course, because the microphone's there and I can't move it near me. It's not portable. 
not a portable microphone, so I can't move it. So, unless unless you know a way to move a big cooker nearer my uh, nearer the microphone, I don't know. But there we go. Right, let's do this. Tea bag in. Exciting. Oh, the thrill. Tea bag in. One and a half sugars. Wow. Oh, milk at the ready. Proper milk. Oh. And what's today's cake? This is exciting, isn't it? Oh, he's making a tea. He's having some cake. His mouth is going open and closed. Wow. I have got. It was in the reject section in the supermarket, but I thought I'll try it. It's uh, a saurine, and we all like a saurine. Everyone likes a saurine. You know, it's one of those nice malt loaves. Uh, but this one's a different one. For some reason, they've put it down to a quarter of its usual price. So it was only 25p. But it's saurine seeds and more. So it's a nice soft, gooey malt loaf. But it's got cranberry seeds bleh, and uh, pumpkin and sunflower seeds. Oh, yes. That looks quite nice. So I'm going to tuck into some of that later on. Ooh. I did have a, a chocolate muffin with me, but I, I, I ate it last night. I was trying to find a printer yesterday. I need uh, a printer for some legal paperwork for mum's kind of uh, legal stuff. Obviously, all the printing shops are shut and uh, all the libraries are shut and uh, internet cafes are shut and I don't have a printer. So I'm, I did like 20 miles cycling yesterday. Try and find a printer shop. And I, so I'm knackered. So I ate my muffin yesterday. Oh, tired, 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 tired. Right, um, we're going to do the questions very shortly, so get ready for that, get your, get your thinky heads on. Uh, just, to, just to say a, a nice thank you to everyone who left, uh, left me nice messages of condolence for uh, the passing of my mum, that was very kind of you, very much appreciated. Some lovely messages from people out there, so that was really good. Uh, funeral went well, as well as can be expected, uh, obviously during these these odd times uh there weren't many of us there uh you know because uh, it's limited the amount of people you can have in in a funeral now uh so it started off odd it was like <laughs> we met the 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 car came in what just one car um pulled up mum in the back obviously in the coffin not in the back of the car because that would be weird uh uh the funeral director three pallbearers put the coffin in there priest in front organist at the back right so that's six there's all the pews there enough space i'd probably say for 150 people but because you can't have many people in there they all kind of backed away so we were left there it was the priest and three of us so that was it so it's a bit it's a bit sad really but um but the funeral director opened up the service with the words strange and different and i was like really is that how you're gonna open it it's like i know mum wasn't everyone's cup of tea but really do you open the service like that and he was actually he was talking about the times we're going through at the moment the fact that uh, um you know uh the you know coronavirus and you can't you can't have many people at the funerals and you know it is but no he made a good point about uh you know it doesn't take a lot of people to care for someone so that that was an, that was nice that all went really well. We didn't really, we didn't have a wait because there was only three of us. So we're going to do that. Hopefully, at some point when all this is over, we'll have a proper funeral. That was just a formality. So that was good. Uh, and then came back the next day. Got back to Euston Station. And I was walking along the bike racks, and I went, "Sure, I parked my bike there." And I went back. I went, 
up and down the bike racks. I said, I'm sure I put it. I always put it in the same place. It was like on a my bike that I cycled in on because I don't like using public transport because obviously coronavirus and all that. I put it high up and I locked it up with a big D lock and all that. Some bastard had nicked it. So that was good. So the day I came back from mum's funeral, some bugger had nicked my bike. So sod's law. So everything's happening three. So I think I've had my three now. So everything else can bugger off. But apart from that, it's all good. The bike, it was a couple of years old. It would have cost me about 200 quid to get it fixed anyway. So uh, I thought, sod it. It's time for a new one. Let, let, let the criminals have the shit bike, which really hurts your ass. I went out. I've walked over to Wembley. It's the two and a half hour walk to Wembley. I got there, found a really good bike shop that was actually open. They served me really quickly. Sold me a good bike for about 350 quid. About a heart, about, you know. Uh, more than half the weight, half as light as my old bike. It's really posh, and uh, yeah, it's nice. It's good. So I've got a new bike. So there we go. Fuck the criminals. Fuck them. <laughs> oh, it's sod's law, though, isn't it? Anyway, my tea's almost done. Gonna do the tea. We'll do the questions. I might have a little squidge of cake. I'm gonna open up some windows because we need some air. I'm dying. Here we go. Windows open. There we go. Whoa, that's better. Oh, what's that? Something outside. It looks like... Oh, dear. It look, looks like a fox has probably had a bird outside. There looks like a bit of an explosion. bit of an explosion of bird outside. A white one. Oh, dear. Just doing my... T there we go. Tea in. Put the milk in. There we go. Milk, 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 lemonade. Around the corner, chocolate's made. We all know that old trick. Yeah, that looks like it looks like looks like it could be a dead pigeon. Uh, and I saw a dead coot yesterday. Oh, it was on the towpath. Unfortunately, the coots are a little bit stupid. And even though the towpath is busy because people are you know using it to get to work and stuff like that, coots have a, have a habit of like there'll be one side of the towpath that's busy and one side that's absolutely empty. And what they'll do is they'll sometimes have a little lie down in the middle of the verge, which is fine, you know, they're not on the towpath, but sometimes you see them and they're having, they're, they're having a sit down in the middle of the path and because coots are black, and the towpath is black, it's hard to see them. And the one I saw yesterday, it looks like someone had hit it with its bike and it was all mangled. So uh, yeah, goodbye, Mr. Coots, farewell. Right, Whew, I'm out of breath, right, okay shouldn't be given the amount of bloody cycling i did yesterday oh my new posh bike very posh it's nice it's got posh gears oh, I'm, not, I'm used to it. it's got posh special shimano gears and it's and the the suspension's good and you can you can convert it from road bike to uh alpine bike in like one turn of a button and oh dear and it's light and the new d-lock is huge and heavy and it's like if anyone can break that d-lock they can have the bike but uh, yeah, it's good. Do you know what? Things happen for a reason. That's why. That's why. When I came back and I saw the bike had gone, I was like, I wasn't really pissed off. I was like, do you know what? The only thing I'm pissed off about is I'm having to get the tube, part of the tube back home. But I only caught it as far as I need to. Then I walked. I, I thought it's only ten further miles. I'll just walk the other ten miles. So I did that. <sighs> Criminals. Although I know what bike shop they're going to sell it at. They always sell it at the same shop anyway. Idiots. I'm not gonna call the police, I can't be asked. And do you know do you know whose patch it was nicked on? Oh, he's listening to this and he's gonna be unhappy. 
Police Constable Arsenal Guinness was nicked on his patch. You see what you see what happens, Arsenal? You move you move out of that borough to go and do a new posh job. Yeah. And it all, it all goes to shit. All the crime comes back. They're like, oh, Guinness is gone. He's gone off to solve big crimes involving uh, Pippa Middleton and a lovely round bottom. Yeah, he's gone off to solve all the big crimes. And look, all the crimes coming back to Euston. It's all your fault. I blame you. Right. <laughs> Everyone ready with you? Here's, here's some questions. Uh, now, as before, some are easy, some are hard. Some might be missing. What I've decided to do now is instead of going back in and deleting them, uh, if I edit these this part out of the episode, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to leave them in because I just thought they're interesting facts that will be in there. So if you hear something and you think, oh, I didn't know that, it's probably because I removed it. Right. Okay, question number one. Ten questions. Here's the first one. Where did Arthur briefly work around the time of the murder? Ooh, I mentioned it in there, but did you remember it? Ooh. Question number two. What is the name of the king's private secretary? And yes, I had to practice this name a lot. Uh, question number three. Which Scottish town did Eliza come from? Question number four. Where did Eliza do a short course in domestic service? Mm. Question number five. Name Arthur's two current wives. Obviously, this is current wives, as in when this episode was about, not now, because they're probably dead. Question number six. Uh, what three words did Arthur misspell on the checks that he wrote? The ones that bounced. Oh, actually, some of them didn't bounce. Uh, no, they did. Ugh. Uh, I need cake. Uh, question seven. Why was why was Eliza recuperating in Brighton? Question number eight. What did what? Question number eight. What was the first thing Arthur was convicted of stealing? <sighs> this will take you. You have to remember it far back to remember that one. Uh, question number nine. Their marriage was announced in Eliza's local paper. But what was that local paper? And question number 10. Arthur was confined to what for three years? Mm, the answer is not prison. There was another type of prison he was confined to. Right. OK, let's dive into some details here. Now, um, if you know your history, you're probably uh, looking at this episode going, oh, that's quite prothetic. Prosaic? I can't remember the word. It's convenient. Let's say convenient. This episode, you're probably thinking, oh, that's kind of remarkable. He's bringing out this episode at the same time as it's the 75th anniversary of VE Day, which, uh, it, well, it's meant that the anniversary technically takes place on the 8th of May uh, 2020. Uh, and this episode is going to go out on the 7th of May, the day before. So that was deliberate. I deliberately kind of timed this because I thought there was going to be some big celebrations about it because it is 75th anniversary of VE Day. Um, but um, obviously that 
uh, isn't really going to take place because we've got all the virus things going on. Uh, so because this episode is all about the victory celebrations, which would, you know, we had VE Day, but because the war had just literally finished, they had to wait a year until they could get troops back and, you know, decide what they were going to do. And they're going to go right in a year's time. We're going to have big celebration. Everyone's going to get pissed and it'll be a great time. So that's why I've planned this episode around around this moment. Uh, but obviously the big celebrations are not going to happy happen here. But hopefully there'll be something online, or hopefully we'll do something next year. Well, we, maybe we can do a celebration of the London Victory celebrations. That's what we should do. Um, interesting fact: it doesn't really appear in this episode because I took quite a bit out. But Arthur, he lived in a couple of places around this time. He had a couple of bed sits here and there, one in Brighton, but he also just before. He lived in a, uh, a bedsit at 25 Doors Road in Fulham. And interestingly, the Hendersons from uh, the sulfuric case, the acid bath murderers, they lived at number 16 Doors Road. So literally, remember, it was called the Doles Hospital, literally a couple of doors down. Uh, I double checked this. The Hendersons moved in uh, Christmas 1947, so they didn't actually know each other. They they wouldn't have crossed paths, but it's it's remarkable that they would, you know, just a couple of doors down um although i'm going to throw this in as well uh because this is interesting although we always celebrate you know ve day and you know we had the big london uh celebrations the london victory celebrations there there's one thing that everyone forgets and that prior to that uh there was the berlin victory parade in 1945 uh this was on the 7th of september 1945 it was held in berlin and you're probably going what was that i didn't know anything about some victory parade and also, why would the Germans be celebrating a victory parade uh, uh, just after the end of World War Two? I mean, you know, everyone's happy because the war is over. But why would um, why would it be um, there be a big celebration by the Germans in their capital following the defeat of uh, the Nazis? Well, it wasn't by then. It was by us uh, because we're nice, magnanimous uh, heroes and people like that. What we decided to do uh, was the four participating countries, the Soviet Union, the United States, United Kingdom and France. What we decided to do was just after war had been declared uh, in Germany, we decided to have a big celebration and a big parade right through the middle of Berlin. Um, there was a couple of fireworks and the, just mostly a military parade, which I, I think is pretty poor form, don't you? It's like it's it's, it's the equivalent of it's the equivalent of pissing on a burning man i, I just think joe when i read about that i was like what the hell is that but it's absolutely true that's what we did joe that's really bad form i think but there we go let's not let that sully our memories of uh the uh, the, the other victory parade that we had right okay uh why have i written this one here oh yeah i thought i'd throw in some extra details about william mutlow who was the kind of the the, the uh, labourer and petty thief who uh, Eliza had kind of been boyfriend of for a couple of years. I kind of brushed over his life, but um, by the time that she died, she was 41, he was 71, so he was 30 years older. They lived at 40 Wargrave Avenue in Tottenham. They'd been together about on and off for about 15 years, and for at least nine of those, uh, they'd lived as man and wife, but they weren't married. But she would often referred to herself as Elizabeth Mutlow. They were kind of together for about 10 years before World War II started. Uh, uh, 
she actually ended up uh, she uh i can't remember if this is in the episode she ended up uh with a small criminal conviction for petty theft uh in 1939 uh, he was a thief anyway it was around that time that she was like it's over but they kind of still remained as friends uh around 1943 they met up again and kind of stayed as friends but also you know partly lovers as well christmas 1945 uh eliza tells uh william mutlow that she's pregnant um interestingly i mean whether it's just because he's a nice guy because he's even though he's a criminal he seems like a nice guy seems decent enough but she borrowed 50 pounds from him which was a sizable amount of money then uh and it was alleged that she used that money to get an illegal abortion obviously as mentioned end of march 1946 she's in st george's hospital for an operation uh owing to complications from it just well, it says owing to complications but uh, given where the operation was uh she was there for about 10 days then he he paid for her to go on a holiday to brighton uh he funded that again makes you wonder why he funded that was he just nice or was he was he actually the father um she got the accommodation in brighton i didn't mention about this but william's sister mrs brown accompanied her as well or was meant to uh i took her out of the story because she doesn't really serve a purpose uh mrs brown was meant to be joining her uh on the third but she was late she didn't arrive until the sixth but by that point uh eliza had already met arthur by that point they kind of struck up a friendship um and even even actually eliza even introduced arthur to william mutlow as well uh took this out of the story as well this was um it was about well i'm gonna have a slurp of tea uh i took out the whole thing about where william got the gun from because the gun wasn't his but in the end i just thought you know what it's the story's complicated enough without these additional details in so um as mentioned it was a 32 uh, caliber browning automatic pistol it, it belonged to his uh it was from his lodgings at 25 doors road in fulham uh it was uh, the guy who lived there was a guy called john Rowland, who was a radio engineer uh, a friend of arthur's they lived they, they shared a room together uh it was legally his possession uh and with that gun he had about he said he had around five or six rounds of ammunition um a couple of days before the murder arthur came in said he wanted to borrow it um john Rowland said no uh arthur pestered him uh um when uh, this is why i took it out john Rowland, uh he was going back he was from wales he was going back to his home in carnarvon uh when he got there he noticed that his pistol because he, he was moving out his pistol and his ammo was missing he reported it to police but there was no sign of arthur by that point uh he, he said uh no one else knew i had the gun or where i kept it it was legally bought from a gun de- dealer it was licensed uh that is it yeah that's why i took all that out because it's oh some of his uh arthur's workmates saw him with a gun on the 1st of june 1946 uh but i removed that because it just didn't really serve a purpose um there are a couple of other sightings of eliza prior to her death saturday the 1st of june this is just before the big shopping spree eliza tells ethel walton um 
Now, I didn't write down who Ethel Walton was. I think she was just a friend. That uh, Arthur was her boyfriend and he was coming to stay at 45 Chester Square. Arthur, actually during that week, the, the whole shopping spree week, stayed at 45 Chester Square. On the Tuesday the 4th, this is during the, the big shopping spree, uh, Eliza introduced... Uh, yeah, uh, sorry, uh, Ethel Walton and uh, Eliza and Arthur... Uh, all met up. They went to the Imperial Hotel on Elizabeth Street, which is a street uh, right next door. Um, Eliza said that they'd just become engaged, which was right, uh, that he had bought her a lovely ring and that he was going to buy her a fur coat. Uh, later in the week, uh, oh, what was her name? Uh, Ethel said that uh, Eliza was looking quite depressed that Arthur hadn't kept their appointment. He kept he kept kind of making appointments and dropping them out. And that uh, there was no fur coat. Um, obviously, he tried again later that week. And she said he had deceived her over money matters. And if he did it again, she would call the police. See, even by that point during the shopping spree, Eliza was already kind of a bit dubious about him. Uh, I removed this from the story as well. Uh, Friday the 7th of June this is the night before the murder uh, uh, th 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 so that Arthur could come in and out of 45 Chester Square when he needed to uh, Eliza agreed to hide a key under a dustbin by the basement street door which is uh, yeah, uh, out front uh, so this allows Eliza to do her job um, and uh, gives Arthur access to the building uh, but obviously I took that out because she those are all things that just confuse things. Poor day of the victory parade. There was uh, I glossed over this a little bit because I just I, I felt it was essential that we just get to the story. Uh, Saturday the eighth of June, obviously got a victory parade. Lots going on in town. Uh, later that night, there was a big fireworks display over in Millbank. Uh, lots of noise. Obviously, no one would have heard. Uh, you know her being shot in a house or if you would would have heard the shot you would have assumed it was just a firework uh 11 a.m that morning uh mrs violet may Bus busby was sat in a cafe uh hang on uh yes this uh lion's corner house tea room in piccadilly this is the one on coventry street where uh, the sad face killer had uh, a couple of meals last last time on last week's episode yeah last week's episode quite a popular place um Eliza was sitting there uh, by herself initially. She, uh, she got talking to Violet Busby, and as she always did, you know, she started chatting, talking about the fact that she was getting married very soon, the fact that she was, you know, a uh, uh, housekeeper to the king, things like that. She talked to anyone about this. Uh, and then, yep, uh, it said uh, this is where we get the confirmation of what she was wearing that day. That it was, she was wearing a royal blue jumper. Um, she said it was actually given to her by a lord, so that would be Lord Angus Hutton. Um, and she was also wearing a navy skirt and the fur-lined coat. These are the, the clothes she was murdered in. Uh, and as mentioned, at 1pm, just after 1pm, Mrs Pretoria Grover, good name, housekeeper at 46 Chester Square next door, uh, as the victory parade was taking place, she was standing at the front door. Eliza came out, slammed the door hard, turned left, hurried out, ran into Elizabeth Street. Um, 
Immediately after that, Arthur ran out and hurried after her, glared at Pretoria Grover. Uh, he was in a great rage, and that um, that was the last person to see Eliza alive. That's, well, it's the first confirmation, because obviously she'd run off into Elizabeth Street, which is quite busy. But this was the, first conf- the last ever confirmed sighting of Eliza. Uh, just after the murder, I took this out as well, because I w- w- wanted to get to the story quickly. Um... Arthur was living at uh, that time. He'd moved out of his uh, Doors Road flat and he'd moved to 35 Elder Street in Brighton. Uh, that night, after the murder, he was witnessed by his landlady, Esther Fryer. Uh, he'd, even though he'd only just moved in a couple of days before, he said he was given up his room. Uh, uh, da, 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 hang on. Uh, yeah, she confirmed that uh, he'd actually got five. He'd, he'd just recently bought five new posh suits for himself. Very nice. He was obviously on the, uh, the the bounce checks. Things that were already in there when they searched his possessions, uh, they found a registered letter. Uh, a registered letter dated the 12th of June, so just after the murder, from himself to Eliza, uh, in, endeavouring to contact her. That was his alibi. Uh, I'm going to add a copy of that letter to if if you're on my patreon account you'll get uh you'll see a copy of that letter you can read it in full i'll put it on there but it is him kind of going oh where are you i'm really looking for you i'm really worried blah 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 and it's all a bullshit um in his room they also found two pawn tickets he was really short on money at that time he he, he blows through money fast uh they found uh his return ticket from victoria to brighton on the day of the murder uh, some other stuff that I will remove because it's uh, there was a lot of details in in this case and it took me a while to really filter down to get just to the story. Um, in his flat in uh, Brighton, they also found a handwritten note with the name William Mutlow, Forty Wargrave Avenue. Um, so that's Eliza's uh, kind of boyfriend, other boyfriend. A checkbook uh, with a. Uh, one already signed by himself. This one's interesting. A paying in book for so Arthur's bank account. Slurp of tea. Uh, they had one entry in there going in on the 15th of March 1946. So this is uh, just before he met Eliza. And in there it says it says uh, £2,175, which is a hell of a lot of money. Hell of a lot of money. Although when they looked at it, they realised he'd put the the two and the one in himself so it only actually said 75 pounds and we don't even know if that 75 pounds was real he was using a paying in book but uh he was using it to kind of pretend that he was wealthy when really he wasn't um uh envelope we'll ignore that luggage label we ignore that because that's all about the gun that was oh that was it i thought i put in more than that good lord blimey tally ho what what uh yeah I must have done everything. I think I put everything to do with the investigation in there. Let me just scroll down to my notes. <sighs> I keep all my notes on on the same page. Uh, uh, so uh, um, he was taken to Gerald Police Station, uh, which is in Brighton, at 2.30 uh, on the 15th of June, he refused to make a written statement, verbally stated he had known Eliza for three months, had lived at 45 Chester Square for one week, which is true. They were to be married on the 16th, and her brother, who was a priest, was to marry them. 
Uh, he said on that night of the murder, he last saw her at 7.30pm. Um, they parted, kissed goodbye, and then he got the 8.28pm train from Victoria Station to Brighton. Victoria Station's just around the corner. Uh, and this tallies with what the la his landlady said in Brighton. Um, so we know that Eliza, because the dates match up, uh, Eliza must have been alive at least, well, she was dead no later than 8pm. That's what we know, If the, given that those those dates tally up. Uh, those times tally up. What else we got? What else we got? Uh, I think that's it. Right, let's do the answer to the questions. Answer to the questions. Right, okay, are you ready? I'm asking you, but I can't hear you reply. Uh, there we go. Right, uh, question number one. Where did Arthur briefly work around the time of the murder? Answer... He was a carpenter at the House of Fun on Brighton Pier. So how so you got, you got in Brighton it's seaside you've got loads of piers many of them burnt down. Uh uh the, but the main one the Palace Pier I can't remember if that's the burnt down one or not it doesn't matter don't let me know. Uh and that one's got a big fun fair at the end and uh it's it's good fun but it's but it's quite old fashioned it's quite you know it's deliberately old fashioned. Uh question number 2 uh what is the name of the king's private secretary? It was Sophocles Papanicolaou. What a name. Question number three. What Scottish town did Eliza come from? That was Bathgate. which is not too far from Livingston. Uh, question number four. Where did Eliza do a short course in domestic service? Answer, Regent Street Polytechnic, which is still there today. It's on Regent Street, not too far from uh, Oxford Circus. And if you go there now, you will see a big sign that goes, this is where Pink Floyd was formed, because it was. Uh, question number five, name Arthur's two current wives. His first wife was Emily Twinley, and his second wife was Catherine Whittle. Question six. What three words did Arthur misspell on the checks? OK, they were four, two and hundred. If you're going to forge some checks, there's some useful, useful uh, words that you need to learn to spell. Uh, question seven. Why was Eliza recuperating in Brighton? Uh, I think I mentioned this in the uh, details that we've just gone through. That was uh, she was recovering from complications owing to a botched illegal abortion. And I've written here in brackets, suspected. Obviously, it was illegal around that time. So you weren't allowed to perform an abortion. Uh, and anyone who would would get some serious, serious jail time. Uh, question number eight. What was the first thing Arthur was convicted of stealing? first thing he stole was a watch that was when he was i think it, i think it was when he was 16 uh question number nine that their marriage was announced in eliza's local paper but what paper was it it was the liverpool echo all right all right 
Uh, and question number 10. Uh, what was what was Arthur confined to for three years? As mentioned, it wasn't a prison, although he should have been. Uh, it was a spinal jacket from when he was hit in the head with a piece of uh, timber. We really don't know too much about about that moment in his life, when it kind of happened. Uh, we know it happened in 1929, uh, but we don't really know where or why or what really went on, but it happened. Um, uh, and he, uh, it seemed to not have not been, uh, you know, one of these random accidents. Uh, I made that page too small. Um, uh, what it seems to be, uh, the page is way too small, or oh, it just looks small. Um, uh, what it seems to be, it seems to be maybe he was on a building site or something like that because he was a labourer for a bit because he did actually get some compensation after that. Uh, and it is said for a little while that he tried to set up a, a shop. I can't remember whether it was in Deptford or somewhere like that. And briefly he set up a shop. So he was going a little bit semi-straight um, for a little while. But uh, around 1942-1943, the shop no longer exists anymore. So whether it was blown up in the Blitz, we don't know. Or whether he shut it down or he lost all his money, we don't know. But um just kind of disappears. Oh, dear. Right. That was that. That was the end of that. Uh, hope you enjoyed that. Oh, we're back next week with another story. Of course. Oh, more to go. More stories. Right. I'm going to have my tea. I'm going to have my cake. Probably going to try and catch it. No, I'm going to find a printer, aren't I? I've got to find a bloody printer. God, middle of nowhere. Simple things you can't find anymore. Anyway, life could be worse. Right. Can I go off and find a printer? Have yourself a good day. And thank you for listening to Murder Mile. And uh, join me again next week. That's a better way to sign off, isn't it? Join me again next week for more murdery adventures. And tea and cake and uh, etc. Okay, bye-bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.